and welcome to the Listen Louder podcast, a place to have open and honest conversations around mental health. I'm Megan Gilbride, the host, and each week I'll be discussing various mental health topics with my guests. For the best experience, try listening on the Entel app, where you'll be able to see and access links to exactly what we're talking about. So today is a lovely introduction because it's one of my best friends, Alexandra Cameron. She's an incredible photographer who sets herself apart from the rest with her passion for life and sharing her stories. I always feel she sees the world differently to the average person and it's one of the many reasons I fell in love with her. Alex. Hello. Thank you for coming. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on because when I first met you, well, when we we first met each other, Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I realised was how open you were discussing pretty much anything bit of an open book aren't you I mean with every shoot I do I think they hear my life story I feel so sorry (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so we talked about our own experiences with anxiety like really early on in our friendship probably Mm -hmm. like the second time I met Mm -hmm. you I think um and I just wondered whether you might be able to explain a little bit about where your anxiety started because I think it's so interesting because it's not like anything I've heard before not like most people have to be honest it's quite a random unique thing um but you know I was thinking about it over the last few days about my anxiety because um having arrived here today I have had a a minor anxiety freak out uh having come upon some stairs and some lifts that I'm too scared to go in and actually I would put that in a different box to my anxiety that's kind of affected me my whole life, if that makes Mm. sense. So I can certainly get into that. Um, When I was 15, I, sure are you ready for the story, it's big. I mean, I know it. Are you sure though? (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) There'll be bits that I'm sure I missed out, no, doubtful. Um, When I was 15, I, uh, my sister's friend came round and we all smoked weed together, which um, wasn't new to me or any of my friends. I don't think you ever dabbled in that, really, did you? But um, as long as my mum and dad aren't listening, <laughs> had a I go. Def- I definitely tried, tried weed, it. but um, not something I did for like a very long time. When I talk about it, sometimes I think, "Oh my god, I was such a like dangerous teenager." But certainly around me, most people had a go. So, but this one in particular time, my friend, uh, my sister's friend, brought around some stuff that I can only assume was laced with some psychedelics, some LSD, or something. Um, and me and my sister. I had a trip, I had a whitey, a tripper. It was, it was awful. It was kind of like being stuck in a parallel universe or something. That the, my everything kind of caved in, and I felt like electric shocks down my back, and I saw like white lines in my vision, and it was it was a nightmare. It was really a living nightmare, and I and I knew at the time that I had to live through it, if that makes sense, because I knew that there was a substance in my body, and I had to get through it, even at like uh, fifteen. Whereas maybe I'd be like, oh, who cares? I I wasn't one of those people. I think there are a lot of people who might do stuff like that and go with it. Well, I couldn't in that moment. I was just freaking out. Um, and eventually, because I, I I do remember when I was in it, I kept looking up at the sky because the sky which it was at night time and looking at the stars made me feel grounded, made me feel like I was still on earth and everything was still real. Um, so I just kind of keep darting my eyes up to the sky, uh, which probably freaked my you know, sister out <laughs> even more because she was going through it maybe to a slightly lesser extent, but she was probably like, what is she doing? Uh, but yeah, it helped, it helped ground me. Um, 
So anyway, I eventually I went to sleep, and when I woke up, I was like, oh, thank God, it's out of my system now. Uh, and then I think, it's, it's hard to remember exactly, but I think it was like a couple of days later that I kind of had the same, like a similar feeling where kind of everything kind of closed in and clouded over on me. Kind of such a hard one to explain. The best way I've, I've been able to explain it is it kind of feels like you're being stuck in a dream. So that kind of, um, that fluid in the middle of dream and awake where you still kind of feel like you're trapped and you're aware it's a dream because there's this kind of mistiness to everything. And certainly for me, it felt kind of caved in. Uh, and I was just, you know, in the moment being 15, a couple of days later, I was just like, what? What's happening to me? And was it just like in the middle of the day or something? Or Again, I can't remember the first time it happened, but I do remember a time when I was at school and I was walking down the halls and it happened. And I remember looking at the halls and they were the halls that I'd looked at mm. for five years up until that point or something. And suddenly they just felt different like the, the my everything like I said closed in but it's also a kind of where everything distorts a bit so the hallway felt longer or something do you know what I mean so, and all the, the walls felt different so hard to explain that feels very much like you know when you watch a scary film yeah. or something and there's all that distortion yeah. and like they do a that's... move where they zoom in and uh track back which yeah. makes this it, it's the hallway's the same but it's making it move in a way and it yeah. makes the the perception of it change and that's exactly it that's one thing I often say to people is remember that that kind of happens except that you know um I have no control over it so it came on and I was just like what's going on and it it was pretty scary um and then that would happen every now and again it was often when I smelled people smoking weed It'd be like a trigger exactly which I think was just yeah like I'd smell it and it would remind it was very obviously a trigger in fact like a flashback if anything um, but I'd also sometimes get up when I just felt a little bit uncomfortable or when I felt just a bit, yeah, like trapped in a situation maybe. But it was a while ago, so it's, yeah, I was 15, pretty old now, so <laughs> quite a while ago to remember exactly. It's, I just have snippets of the, that time and when it would happen. Uh, and I went to the doctor because I explained to my parents and I went to the doctor and they prescribed me half a Valium for any time I had that feeling come on. So I had to go into school and with my parents I think and go to my nurse and so she understood that if I went into her and said I'm feeling whatever um a bit like closed in then I can take half a Valium and I only did it once it was a time I remember again I was in my co my common room if I was a 15 I was either in year 10 or 11 and everyone was playing pool and I'm watching them and just suddenly again everything kind of shifted and closed in and the problem the biggest problem is is that when it's happening it's it's quite vi it's visual to be honest like I I know now especially that it's something that's kind of happening in my head nothing is actually changing but it it visually feels like it is so it's not something you can just like try and ignore or not that anything mental health related you can ignore but it, it was it's very in front of my eyes like this that, and so it, there's a quite a quick reaction to oh god oh god oh god you know panic reaction and uh, that was the only instance I went in and I said could I like have half a Valium, uh, although I don't think I knew it was Valium at the time. <laughs> you know me now, like half a Valium, no thank you. <laughs> um, so it's so bizarre that I actually did that. Uh, I don't remember anything it having an impact. I mean, it might have stopped, probably placebo-wise, but I can't really remember. But anyway, throughout the years, it was just kind of something that happened every now and again, but I m was semi-able to manage. 
uh, and t- yeah, I remember when I went to uni, I was especially scared. I'd explain to a lot of people I know, my boyfriend's girlfriend at the time who was going to the same university as me as first years, uh, she knew all about it, so I, she was kind of my crutch. But I do remember being very scared about going that far away from home. Uh, my mum and my dad were kind of quite like safety nets for me. They they felt like safe people if they knew all about it anyway, but they also were able to make me calm down in those moments. So my brother's girlfriend became that kind of safety net. So, I, But I do remember being scared. I remember thinking, but I'm going to be in this hall, halls and this room all on my own. Um, I'm going to have to navigate it on my own. And much like with a lot of things, actually, with those scenarios, I went and it was pretty much fine. My whole string of uni was pretty much fine. Um, luckily, not a lot of weed smokers. <laughs> Who would have thunk? <laughs> so that wasn't a big trigger. So mostly I was okay. Um, and then... I think it was a couple of years after I graduated. I was like 22, 23. Uh, so I'd gone back home and then I was taking a train into London and it was the uh, Cambridge to Liverpool Street line. And it, I was nearly at Liverpool Street and it stopped in a tunnel. And oh my goodness, that's to this day probably the worst. Um, I, I'll call it a panic attack, uh, but I'll explain later what kind of was happening to me and and how it differs maybe from the traditional anxiety or panic attack. But it was it was to me a a panic attack. And and I basically it felt like I was suddenly very quickly at the bottom of a well. So I was in this tunnel. Everything was black. There are a couple of people in my carriage as well. So I was acting pretty shifty because of it. I remember I was reading my book and we were in this tunnel and then just suddenly everything closed in and morphed. And I remember like trying to like, no, come on, concentrate on the words in the book, concentrate. And I just couldn't, I was just, everything was horrendous, like panicky. And I remember, okay, just you, you need, I, I felt like I needed to maybe move because being st- like sat down, being stuck was just too much because my head was just, it felt like it was going to explode. So I remember getting up, taking off my leather jacket and I felt like it was a relatively normal move, but I was also very aware, like, I wonder, was that normal? I sat back down and was like, was I acting normal? Was that really weird? Are they going to think there's something wrong with me? And then it wasn't long. I mean, although it was to me, it wasn't actually that long before the train started moving again. And I, we got out into the light and I started to calm down. And I got out of the train and I was, because it was like one, like barely a stop away. And I was, I calmed myself down. But it was from that moment on that I was like, no to trains then. And then, oh wait, uh, planes are similar to trains because you're stuck in that, no no planes then. And it kind of took on a knock effect to most things that were (laughs) claustrophobia, somewhere where I was uh, out of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think early on, especially what I explained from looking up at the sky, that being outside was a good grounding technique for me. And I can't have that if I'm stuck in a box. So um, much like today where I, sound hella dramatic when I can't take a lift, but it's just another thing that if I get in that lift and it stops, then I'm stuck in that lift. Uh, and I wouldn't usually think that that was that common, but it's happened to my sister and she was in there for an hour. I don't think that that's that unusual, to be honest. Like, I don't love getting in lifts, yeah. but I don't have that kind of same attached anxiety that's to it. you as I do, but like, it still doesn't feel great. That it might stop as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, that's the only thing. It's like, if it stops yeah. and I can't get out, that's I'm literally, it. yeah, in a, in a box. Yeah. And, that's not a very nice feeling. So I don't think that that's that. I mean, you rare. say that though, but then, you know, I can turn up somewhere and they they might not have keys for the stairs or they might have not people who never use them. So it's it's rare enough that the average person in the average place in the average building, they wouldn't have someone who has to have help going up four floors. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's certainly something 
it sucks. Like yeah. it sucks. It sucks that I can't now go on a plane or a train or potentially a ferry. It's, it sucks I can't go in a lift. I don't, the, the worst thing in the world is to make a thing out of something that you don't want to be a thing. You don't want it to, you don't want it to be a problem at all in your life. And you know the irrational irrational that's happening in your head, but it's just a lift. And obviously it can't break down often because like all the people here are using them and, and I don't know, it, there's, but it just doesn't work but like anxiety that. Spirals. and anything like that isn't rational, it's is not, it? That's it's, the whole point. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so in terms of uh, that day, I pretty much ruled them all out. Then I went through a really bad period where I was living, I was getting more and more uh, stressed from that kind of point. And there was a, another point where I also was in a car accident where I flipped over onto my head in the ice, my car flipped over and I was fine. Uh, but then I got terrified to drive on ice, which wasn't exactly anything to do with my anxiety disorder. It was just like, I don't want to go on the ice because I might crash again. It was mm-hmm. kind of fairly rational in that sense. But I decided at that point, because of how scared I was, that I wouldn't go out if it was minus one. Like, that means it's, things can freeze. I'm not going out. And it got worse and worse. And then when the next year rolled around, yeah, it was pretty bad. And I think I'd worked myself up to a pretty bad pace of, place of stress as well. I think everything was kind of quite stressful. And then... Um, at the same time, my then boyfriend and I broke up, which added to the stress. So I then went through a stage of three months in my life where I was pretty much in that dreamlike feeling permanently, like for those three months. And it was horrible. Um, little things would would trigger it. Uh, in fact, little things would trigger a more irrational thought. So I remember one day I was reading I'm going to admit the book name here, but I'm not proud of it. I was reading Twilight, and I she moves from Arizona to the uh, Pacific North or whatever it is, and it, where it rains a lot and it's cloudy a lot. And she says in it uh, that it was overcast and it was making her feel claustrophobic. And boom, suddenly when it was overcast, I start to feel oh, panicky. Alex. And I'd look out. I remember a trip to my grandma and grandpa's once. We were in the car, my whole family, and you know there's a lot of us. Yeah. Stressful enough. But um, I was in this car and I kept looking out the window because there was this small patch of blue sky and it was slowly disappearing because it was getting more overcast. And I was getting more and more panicky in this car, like really just, it kind of feels like, you know when you're so panicky, you feel the blood like pumping your, yeah. around your body and you start to just like feel this tightness, like this restrictiveness. And, Nothing's doing it. Your body's doing it. But the more this blue sky was disappearing, that was what was happening. It felt like a straitjacket was being put on me or something. And I was getting more and more into this dream state. And it it was it was awful. Uh, and there were other things. Like I, I remember having real issues with my breathing because I couldn't really control it very well. And you know, one of the things they say about anxiety is breathe slowly, breathe in, breathe out. And I... I actually find that really difficult because yeah. I find you focusing on my breathing makes me feel like I can't breathe. That's exactly it. Yeah. So so one, I remember one night, uh, it actually was spurred on by something a friend of mine who had been in India. So she came back all hippie and free like, India. <laughs> and she said to me, um, do you know what? You know, breathing is one of the only things you can do both consciously and subconsciously. And I was like, huh. And then two weeks later, I shot up in bed and went, <gasps> because it, breathing suddenly felt like the biggest, most important thing I had to do. And I felt like it was a huge responsibility and if I stop, I die or something. So I like freaked out about it and then I tried to go back to sleep and suddenly it, I was doing this. 
like I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know if that's picking up, but I <laughs> bad breathing basically. And I, I couldn't control it. And it was terrifying. And that went on for ages. So I remember over probably a month, six weeks or something, I was making myself breathe in and breathe out, out consciously to the point where when I go to bed and go to sleep, inevitably, when I'd finally drift off into unconsciousness, I would go <gasps> and yeah. wake up because my body hadn't taken over breathing for me. Um, it was terrifying. I, I was working at Blockbuster in the time, shout out. <laughs> uh, and I, I remember stacking the boxes on the shelves and breathing in and breathing out, like conscious about it. Mm -hmm. And I even remember telling my friend who I worked with at the time and they were like, yeah, blinking's like that. If you tell a person to don't think about blinking, what do they do? And you're suddenly doing this, like you're blinking, blinking, blinking. <laughs> yeah. So it's not That's really true. And it's so hard with the breathing thing that I couldn't, I couldn't get the rationale to take over and just be like, let it go. Uh, the only thing that got me out of that time was one, I think, the process of getting over my boyfriend, which I don't think was the main thing that was causing all of it, but it was an added stress. So I finally was kind of like getting over that heartbreak. Uh, but it was also just distraction. Just I kept living my life. And as I kept living my life, I would think about it slightly less, slightly less, like one hour that day and then an hour and 10 minutes the next day. And it would just slowly became like it happened. It just happened less and less. And then a year later, it would happen like every now and again. And, and then it, it kept on like that. It was kind of similar to how the process had gone from when I was 15 up until the point where I'd taken that dreaded train ride. But it, it, it was a thing when I was 15, then it I kind of become manageable. It came less and less, as I probably as the fear of it in my head dissipated because it became so irregular and so um, so few and far between. And then that train ride happened and then it happened again and then slowly I started to, but it really was awful. I had some really bad moments there. And then, I don't know, yeah, I, I started living with it more and more. Like, it became less and less and I started becoming a bit more thinking about it less and less and becoming more functional in that way. And then I think it was only six or seven years ago, <laughs> of all places, it was Twitter and Uber Tweets. Do you follow Uber Tweets? No. It's just a, it's just a place that sh chucks out tweets about facts. Oh, no, no, not Uber Tweets, Uber Facts, sorry. Yeah, Uber Facts. Uh, they chuck out facts. <laughs> and there was this one fact they put up where they said, uh, derealization is a phenomenon or phenomenon or a feeling that one percent of the population can experience where they feel in a dreamlike state and I looked at that and I was like wait what do you realize that it has a neck wait what that's what I get that's what I get and I googled it and there were this more descriptions it was called um a disassociative disorder yeah uh which happened which a lot of people can experience as one-off so a lot of people might have experienced that dream state uh maybe when you're like really tired or something and you're kind of I don't know, traveling in a cab home from the party the night before and you just feel really dazed. So a lot of people can experience it, but uh, a few people, it, it kind of turns into anxiety or it's born from anxiety. It's hard to know where it starts. For me, it was smoking the weed, which is also very common, uh, which is comforting. <laughs> but up until that point, I I thought I was I thought I was crazy. My biggest fear that I was crazy, like genuine. If, if someone even mentioned the word schizophrenic to me, I would start panicking because I was so scared that that's what I had or something like it. Because you're out of control and it felt like I was out of control in my mind. Like there are times in my life where I've had panic attacks where I've lost control of my breathing or my hands go numb and pins and needles, those quite common symptoms of, of panic attacks. But this was more 
my mind. You know, it's very yeah. hard. It's very scary. It's when scary when you can't control. Well, it is. I suppose well, it is the, the same for any sort of it, isn't it? But yeah. when it's a distorted reality, yeah. I bet it felt like such a relief to have a word for what it was, and that you weren't the only person that mm -hmm. was experiencing it. Completely. Like the more, and I and I would only read up on it in very small parts because. Uh, reading up on it, we'll, we'll re talking about it, thinking about it, reading about it was another trigger. If I'm thinking about it, it'll probably happen. Um, but do you still feel that way now? Yeah, but I'm a lot better. I can talk about it a lot more. There's there's a level I think if we're going into the realms of something that then might, or even if my mind's just going, I'm closing in a little bit too much, and I'll say, okay, maybe we need to change the subject. Mm -hmm. um, but I am a lot better with it. I think probably from having the understanding of it. So derealization, which by the way, <laughs> Will, my boyfriend Will pointed out that I should specify that I haven't uh, technically been um, officially diagnosed with derealization. Oh, he told you before you come on this, you should say that. Yes, because he didn't want <laughs> me so to, funny. I know, but he didn't want me to come on here and say all this stuff. And there might be a lot of people out there saying, but that's what I have and, and maybe self-diagnose yourself or think that they can use some of my coping mechanisms if they have a similar thing. Right. So I didn't want to fool anyone. No, I, I haven't been officially diagnosed but I have been to three therapists who have heard me talking about derealization uh, they've done their own studying up and they've not at one point said oh no no you don't have this so I, I think there's some understanding there's probably what I have uh, as well as other people I know who've been diagnosed who have the same symptoms if you like uh, but I did want to just put that out there so derealization is uh, actually a flight or fight response which we're all common uh, it's common um, we're all familiar with, sorry, because anxiety is that, basically. Your heart's going to start pumping because it's a fight-or-flight response. Derealization is is uh, a, a version of that that is quite an extreme version. It's something that happens when you're in such a, a, an extreme point of um, needing to save yourself, basically, when you're in a, a dangerous situation. For example, if you were trapped in a cave with a rock on your arm and you had to cut your own arm off, Mm -hmm. then you would get this feeling of derealization, which would disassociate you enough to be able to actually cut off your arm. So it's being able so to... So sometimes your mind will put you into that state exactly. to save you. Exactly. Wow. God. Exactly. Uh, and the, and <laughs> I can't imagine there's a, there's a massive amount of situations that that would be needed, but I'm sure when we were up against saber-toothed tigers or something, maybe <laughs> <laughs> back in the day might have been a bit more of a reason for it. But then there was that guy in you know, 127 hours who did have to cut off his arms. Yes. So, you know, I'm grateful we have that <laughs> to be able to, <laughs> in case that happens to me, I know I can do it. Um, but I think that sometimes, for me, I think it was something that was born off of PTSD. So this triggering thing that happened when I smoked weed, again, not to diagnose PTSD, I, I, and I'm so I'm not saying it's definitely that, but I think possibly because of how traumatic that was, that every time uh, a feeling like that I.e. if I sm smelled someone smoking weed, mm -hmm. that's why it would happen. I think it was actually like um, a coping mechanism for this derealization, which is this flight or fight, would happen when I smelt something that then would trigger me back to what happened when I smoked the weed and had the really bad trip. I think. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> uh, but I think that that was the process of it. Um, I'm fairly sure that I saw someone recently talk about it in Parliament, which is huge. About derealization. Yeah, they went in there because they were talking about how 1% of the country, so we have 60 million, I think, in the country, 1% suffer from derealization. Um, 
which is a small percentage, but a lot of people. <laughs> so it means that it's something really rare and it's hard to it's hard enough to describe, uh, but it's it's definitely something that's affecting people. It's hard to talk about. A lot of the time, which was exactly the same with me, you think you're crazy. It's very common. It's very common to get it off of uh, substances like smoking weed. Um, there is a book written which one of the, there are like three examples of people who can suffer from it and how they can suffer from it or how it might have occurred. And one of the chapters of this this example was smoking weed. So that can just show how common it is. And that's a book about derealization. Yeah. Do you know what that's called? Um, I can't suggest where the book's from because uh, reading and talking about derealization was quite a trigger for me. So when she gave, she suggested to me to buy this book, I kind of was like, yeah, you don't get it because oh, <laughs> I no. can't buy the book because it means I might have to read it and I don't want to read it. It's like, yeah, the, the, some, one of the best coping mechanisms for me is distraction. So mm. if I'm thrown in a situation, I don't want to read about it. Uh, I don't really like, love talking about it. I don't want to, um, which, you know, you're my Bessie Max, I'll do it for you, but you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah. That's it's, so it's interesting though, because you, you say quite often that you don't like to talk about it, but you and I speak about it quite a lot. So do you think you just find it more comforting talking about it with somebody that you know, or? I think once I've explained it to someone. And they get it. Yeah, mm. I think then, then I know I'm in a safe space that they, there doesn't have to be an on and on and on. Yeah. Does that make sense yes. or something? Because when I went to CBT, which I stopped doing, it was quite traumatic actually, which I think is a lot down to who it was, not what it was about. So I, I think CBT is probably, well, I know CBT to be effective for so many people. Mm. But this particular person and my particular anxiety, uh, which is rare, she didn't really know about it. She tried to read up on it, but it, it wasn't the greatest. She wanted me to go in every week and talk in very specific detail about my triggers, um, my vo- things I avoid uh, and exactly how it makes me feel which I can understand being really helpful to someone who might have say generalised anxiety because you want to kind of lessen the beast you want to make it something that's not maybe as scary but I, I personally and I did some did talk to some other people on it as well with the realisation it's really not a good move <laughs> you's not really you don't want to linger and talk uh, and certainly in the past for me, especially that three month period, the thing that eased me out of it was not thinking about it and distracting myself and getting on with things. So I appreciate that I'm gonna have to confront a lot of things myself to get on a ferry one day or potentially a plane, <laughs> maybe. Um, but sitting, talking about it at length uh, in intricate detail certainly was very damaging. It was really yeah. damaging. You and I have spoken about derealization a lot. But would you say that's the same as the anxiety that you get? Is it one and the same? I kind of love that you brought that up because I actually don't think it's the same. Mm. I think that I was susceptible to the derealization because I have maybe some underlying anxiety, more generalized anxiety. Because before you had that horrible trip, you didn't like, did you not drink or anything? Was was that before then that like you were still very kind of like safe and reserved or no? No. Was that after that? It was I stopped drinking, doing any drugs, uh, pretty much taking any medication as well. Yeah. uh, Because uh, of that. Because of the derealization hitting in. Uh, Before that, I was a bit of a wild child. I think I was always a bit more fragile than say my siblings. I was more the like smaller one. I could be loud when I wanted to be, but my dad, I think because I was the smallest, so even my younger sister, but I was short and little. I think he always treated me as like the little one. So 
I think that there was um, an element of, I don't know, keeping more of an eye on me or something, which may have, I, I, it's hard to say, isn't it? It, unless I go into like family psychology or something uh, but I think probably I'm just one of those people that is always going to be just a little bit more anxious but it never stopped anything before I was 15 and before that trip right so I, I never had anything that I wouldn't do I was I was I wanted to be an, an actress I'm still annoyed at my parents for not taking that seriously I could have been, <laughs> could have been the biggest child actor ever take me on an audition geez um but uh no I was really outgoing and I drank uh, I had a very liberal family. Uh, I wasn't a binge drinker or anything, but it was perfectly acceptable for us all to try a bit. And getting up to 15 when you do the whole going to a party and then get drink too much and then cry on the stairs about a boy for like three hours. Very good at that. I was should have got a medal for that, actually. Um, so you, if anything, the people in my life should be very thankful that I don't drink. Um, <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't think it was something that was like very obviously in existence before that. The only times I really showed signs of maybe like anxious moments was off the back of my dyslexia which is only really occurring to me now talking about it so thank you therapist Megs but <laughs> I think that uh, growing up say t telling the time I was slower at that it was something I couldn't grasp I was, ha was dyslexic I would learn in different ways but I remember in year six my teacher got me up behind her desk while all the oh rest of the God. class were getting on with something else she was quite loudly trying to getting frustrated with me trying to teach me how to tell the time so she put like the three and then on on, uh, on the she was teaching me 315 or whatever it was and she was like come on just look at it look at it what's it say and I remember my classmates looking up at me as well like trying to mouth it maybe that or just like looking really sad not for me. a good teaching method <laughs> and for most dyslexics or actually a lot of people that are being confronted or asked a question that they make some freeze right makes yeah. you freeze I would have that a lot. So I'd have real freeze moments and I had real bad uh, self-esteem because of that. That's uh, like so interesting that you say that because even now at like 30 years old, do you remember when I first came around, like one of the first times I started hanging out with you guys in a bigger friendship group mm. and you were like, let's play a game, let's play a game. And I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, I absolutely cannot play a game. Anything yeah. that involves maths or like me needing to use my brain. Yeah. Like I've totally freak out because I'm like, I'm not clever enough. I can't do it, I'm gonna look stupid. Mm -hmm. Just something as simple as playing a game. Exactly. I don't know if something happened when I was younger that's made me have a bad experience, but it, it can be something as simple as that that like triggers really bad self-esteem issues exactly. and therefore anxiety. And it, it makes you freeze. Yeah. Like if someone said to me, 52 times 78, I would freeze. I'd be like, what, what? No, yeah. no, I'm not doing it. I am not no, doing it. No, but that's it. what I do with Jamie. He'll say to me, oh, but what's this, like this plus this or something? And yeah. I'm like, no. No, I'm not even going to try. Exactly. Even if it's something like ridiculously simple that I know I can do, I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. You're not. I'm not. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I remember another memory of being in year three or something, and they had this hot seat for telling the times tables, and you once a week or once a month or something, you'd sit in the hot seat and tell, say, one of the times tables, and I was okay with like two and five and ten. I kind of grasped those a little bit, but I think it was seven. I had to do the seven times table, <laughs> and I just remember sitting in this chair and I just looking at her, wanting to burst into tears, just being like, I, I, I can't. And so that was, yeah. The, I think those moments were the, the rest of the time. I played up. I was a loud mouth. I could perform. I loved to be an actress. I loved games. Uh, you know, sports, all of that kind of stuff. But those moments and maybe occasionally around my siblings who were a bit more dominant than me when I was a child anyway, would be the times I'd, I'd clamber up. So I think there was underlying stuff there. Mm. And I think uh, in terms of like generalized anxiety, 
which I'm not calling generalized because no, <laughs> that's realization is way more common or something. Yeah. Um, complex, sorry, but like generalized anxiety is in, you know, your heart rate and uh, feeling sick and, you know, again, numb hands, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I've gotten that throughout my life randomly, um, usually brought on by something obvious as opposed to not so obvious, i.e. once I fell down the stairs and I started having a panic attack because it shocked me. It's shock things, I think. Uh, once I, I thought I had meningitis at university in my university halls, they had to call the paramedics and I'm on the floor, my legs up because I had this rash. All of my people on my halls around me, like while I'm on the floor, this one poor girl, bless her, held my I hand. Are you telling me about it? And I was like, she held my hand even though she could have got meningitis because they all thought I had meningitis. And then my eyes couldn't focus and my hands became pins and needles. I got to the hospital and they were like, right, so you you got you got a virus, just bog standard virus, but you're you're dehydrated, which doesn't surprise me because I never drank water. And you know that's probably surprising because I drink I have a water bottle all the time now. But back then it was tango, <laughs> nothing else, like apple juice. <laughs> so I was severely dehydrated and and basically on that floor I was having a panic attack, but I hadn't had one like that. Like I had only had the ones where I felt suddenly like I was in a cloud or something I'd never had one that Mm. that did those physical symptoms to me so it happens to me now and again and also just generally kind of what happened today so I uh, went to the car park today and I uh, it was there was no one down there I had to go really far down this um, this car park and I don't really like being that underground. It makes me feel claustrophobic, which is related to the derealization, but didn't like it. And then I had to couldn't find the stairs. And I found the stairs, came up the stairs, and I arrived in the building and I had to be escorted up the stairs here because I don't like lifts. And I got to the top and I basically said to Max, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I think I'm having a mental breakdown. <laughs> which I don't think I wasn't in derealization then. That was just me panicking. That was too much and me just panicking. So yeah, I, I think I there are things there in my life that are certainly more traditionally uh, anxiety mm. triggers and, and uh, symptoms so I definitely have that as well I don't know what brought on one or the other I don't yeah. know what existed first if I didn't have the realisation if I hadn't smoked that weed at 15 I just don't know and you said about the um, the panic attack that you had on the train that was different to anything else why was it uh, different? that was uh, sorry I, I think what I meant at the time when I was describing it at the time I called it a panic attack it's it's it was a derealization panic attack basically. Okay. So it was derealization. I it kind of felt like I was literally at the bottom of a well. Everything was closed in. It was still very visual uh, for me. So that that example mm. was what I still sometimes call a panic attack. But for me, but it was you didn't know at the time. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Or right. any difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you very recently actually spoke about it on your Instagram about calling one one one. Um after having like kind of a bad anxiety episode. And I didn't even know that that was an option. And neither did you, did you? When you called them, you were just like hoping for the best, I guess. But could you explain a little bit more about like what caused you to call them and what the outcome was? Yeah, I, it's a weird one. It was over the last couple of months, I think. I'm, I'm a fairly happy, positive person. You hear me talk a lot, is that true? Do I just say that? Am I a what do you fairly mean? happy, positive person? You are, like, you feel everything very deeply, I think. So when you are feeling happy, you're very happy. Okay. And when it's the when it's the, the opposite, opposite, it's obviously the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I still, I have, like, a very, uh, always have ha- had quite a deep appreciation for life. Mm. I, I can find 
beauty and very simple things, which I think everyone can, but even as a photographer. But I think, I think I that's s- why you're such a good photographer, though. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Not agreeing, but thank you. Um, but yeah, but I think it's something that, may, that, that that's part of a, an artist or a photographer or something is that you're, you notice these small and beautiful things. So I, I always have this kind of appreciation for life, but um, even throughout my anxiety, actually, it's never taken that away anyway. Uh, but yeah, over the last couple of months, which uh, I've, I've, I've experienced depression once before in my life, which was after a car accident when I was 16. So I do know depression. It was it was for a shorter period. Um, so it wasn't probably clinical, but it, it was a very much a feeling of, of numbness and not looking forward to anything and, and dark times, really. So I knew, I knew what I was, whatever state I was in was, wasn't depression. I'm just, I've just felt overwhelmed, I think is the best way to describe it. I felt really overwhelmed with, a, with emotion. Uh, I'd just uh, come back from a family wedding with my entire family, which had some ups and downs, to say the least. Uh, and I also, I just, uh, even life at the moment, which I'm not going to go into because, to be honest, there's nothing specifically really bad that's going on in my life at the moment. It's just a lot of things that get on top of you. And I think... I think when I wrote about it online, that was the thing I really wanted to make clear that 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 can happen to everyone and that we shouldn't ignore it, to be honest, or we shouldn't downplay it even. So so I had that weekend and a lot of things just started kind of piling on top of me to the point where now everything kind of felt crap. Do you know what I mean? Like, whereas before it was like, oh, that's, that's annoying me. Oh yeah, and that too. Suddenly it was like, and I'm crap, and, and I'm crap at photography, and nobody wants to hire me ever again, and I just want to live with my boyfriend. All this kind of stuff just felt like way worse. And I woke up this morning and I felt overwhelmed. I just, I wanted to scream really loudly or beat the wall or, or just cry all day. Uh, and instead, I, <laughs> I, w- I went to go shopping to Tesco, and on the way, I had a message exchange which which pissed me off even more to be honest so when I parked up and I was feeling really on the brink of things I was like I'm ringing so I rang 111 and you're right I didn't know I didn't know in particular that there was a mental health emergent line when I rang up I thought even if I just talked to 111 who I've called up before for a number of random things and they're always very nice that they would be able to point me in the right direction even if it was okay there's a charity here you could call or but I felt fairly confident there probably would be. I don't know why. Maybe I've heard about it somewhere in my subconscious and I, it, uh, or, or, or I've seen an advert or something, but I felt fairly confident that if I rang up and said, I need to talk to someone, that I probably would be able to in the next couple of days. So I didn't know it would be the same day. I thought next couple of days, because I had called my therapist that morning and she wasn't back for three weeks. And I was like, nope, I need to talk to someone before that. And they would, she was just really, really lovely lady on the other end of the phone and she, uh, asked me some questions um, and then she said okay well there's Mind the charity uh, they have some places around in uh, different cities there's one in Cambridgeshire where you can go in and talk to someone and I think I had said okay well even if it was tomorrow that'd be cool because I, <laughs> uh, I I felt kind of bad I suppose or something and she said oh well if it, if it was tomorrow you'd have to call back tomorrow I was like oh it is like a same day thing and she said yes so I was like, okay, get me in today, that's fine. Um, and then at about 6 p.m., I, I'm pretty much on the dot, which I think is when they open, which is late, but they're open all night. Uh, 6 p.m., this woman rang me and said, hey, we've got your slot open, when do you wanna come in? I was in the car at the time, I said, I'll be there, I'll be there, I'm coming around now. Uh, and I talked for about two hours and I cried. And it was, it felt exactly 
like I had hoped and what it often did feel like after I had a therapy appointment, to be honest, which if anybody's had therapy would be able to attest to, that you just have this kind of big exhale feeling, like a big release uh, purge of thoughts and emotion and feeling in in the best way. It, instead of it feeling like it's built up inside of you, you're feeling like suddenly it's flowing from you in a good way, you're releasing it. Um, so although I didn't know her and I had to start from scratch with her going to my through my story uh it was it it felt like a big release and I didn't really hesitate mentioning it online because I kept thinking about all the people out there who might be feeling as overwhelmed sometimes or maybe even worse and they might not know it existed or or they might know it existed but they think I can't do that and I wanted to encourage them to to do it because um did it save my life that day? Maybe not save my life, but it, 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 it saved my mental health that day. It really, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that kind of thing for granted. We shouldn't play with our emotions or mental health that way. We, if we're feeling that way, we should know that there is a place we can go um, and feel okay about asking for help, I think is the thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did it and I, it was I'm really grateful that I did it yeah I think it's really good that you took the initiative and like had the balls as well because I think a lot of the time that's the difficult thing is being like I'm in this bad space and you can't think about anything but that Mm. as opposed to like you actually taking the situation and being like no I need and I deserve to have somebody help me and for people to know now that that's an offering but also I think it's the stigma yeah which you talk about a lot on here that I think that people might think, oh, I could really do with just talking to someone today because it's just everything's feeling so hard. But I think that a lot of people might think, yeah, but uh, that, 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 that kind of place is only for people who are having a mental breakdown or mm-hmm. can only ask for help if they're feeling potentially suicidal. And I felt a, a margin of guilt ringing up because it said it was, if you're having a mental health emergency, press two. And I was like, oh, should I press two though? Or should I just talk to 111? Because it's not really an emergency. But I realised, one, from talking to the woman after I did press two, and from talking to the lady who I talked to when I went uh, to that therapy session in the evening, that it is for everyone. They said, no, it's not just for people who are in, who are in a sudden crisis, it's for anyone who feels they need help in that moment. Yeah, that's amazing. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're endangering yourself or something. It just is someone to talk to, really. Simply, it's someone to go and talk to when you feel overwhelmed. Or, or for any of your own reasons, and I think that people should know that there doesn't it doesn't have to be. Oh, I gotta go now, or something's gonna happen. It just it's just if you're having a really crap day and you just want to vent, and I hope people do do it more because this this lady who I spoke to, I said I feel really bad uh, because you know there's nothing really wrong in my life, and she said, but the, we're open all night. This is for literally this is the reason we exist is so that some people can have a place to come and talk. So. I'm putting that out there to you world, to you, to you podcast world. But if you're, if you're feeling those feelings, do it. I really recommend doing yeah. it and, and have no shame about it. Yeah. And off the back of that, and I think like a nice way to actually end it would be like, obviously you have lived with anxiety and all different types of kind of like mental health issues for quite a long time. But could you share some tips for people who might be going through a, a bad time at the moment or experiencing some of the things that you have of how you would best deal with a bad mental health day? So 
I think there are two t types of tips I could give, one on derealization and one on probably more generalized anxiety or just feeling emotionally overwhelmed. So I probably will say, if anybody out there, just in case, is suffering from derealization, talk to someone, um, know that you aren't crazy and that it is a real thing and that it is manageable. And I think it probably would go similarly for you as it did for me that distraction in that moment is quite quite helpful. So go outside, feel the wind, chat to someone, don't chat about what's going on, try and chat about something so you can start to distract yourself and get out of that kind of headspace that happens when everything closes in. Uh, for generalized anxiety though, um, I guess, yes, you're right, that led off quite well, but I would say know that the NHS emergent line is there and the mental health uh, subline is there as well if you need to go and uh, talk to someone, which um, was the biggest thing that I did the other day for myself and, and I certainly, if I need to in the future, will have comfort knowing that that's there. Uh, but I would say in terms of being in a like an emotional or overwhelmed state, I think that you need to know it's okay to feel it, that you can go talk to someone if you want to, but if you don't want to and you want to sit there and cry, or even if you want to sit there and be in a bloody bad mood, be in a bloody bad mood. Um, it's okay to feel what you're feeling and to vent it in, in whatever you need to that day. Uh, and if, if necessary, apologize later, but l do whatever feels right in that moment because I think a lot of people can push those feelings aside or try and bury them to put on a smile. Uh, and if you're in an especially overwhelmed state, just don't, just cry, uh, just shout, just eat all the chocolate, do whatever you need to do to make you feel safe in that moment. Thanks, Al. You're so good. I really appreciate you coming on and being so open and honest about everything, especially when it's not an easy thing for you to do. And I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at listen.louder. I'd love to chat with you. <laughs>